Merry Christmas. I hope you had a fantastic day yesterday, but today I have a real Boxing Day treat for you. I'm going to introduce you to a guy who grew his business from a one-man band in 2003. Just 20 years later, he's doing $40 million in revenue. And today he's going to tell you how he did it and how you can use what he's learned to grow your MSP. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Special. Hi, my name is Tom Andrulis. I'm the CEO of Intelligent Technical Solutions. And thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, Tom. You have a fascinating story of how you've grown your MSP and come together with a number of other MSPs. Uh, it's a story we're going to explore on today's podcast. And we're also going to look at a very hot topic right now, which we know is going to continue to be an even hotter topic next year. And that is M&A, mergers and acquisitions, something that you are involved with right now and something I think most MSPs can see is becoming a bigger and bigger, bigger thing. So let's start at the very beginning. Take us back to the very start of your business, Tom. What did you start? When did you start it? Tell us the, the early days of your story. Yeah, so if we go way back, I, I used to work at EA Sports as a network engineer, and they closed our studio in Las Vegas. And, you know, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. Either, uh, you know, move to LA, work for EA Sports again, or, you know, do something different. I decided to stay in Las Vegas, and through a couple of friends of mine, um, I got basically introduced to IT consulting. And so I went through and consulted with a few different businesses, realized that I loved helping people. I loved fixing technology. I just loved everything about it. So in 2003, I started Intelligent Technical Solutions. So, you know, as a one-man band, basically back then in 2003, had to figure out everything. I think technically, um, I felt like I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know how to do accounting. I didn't know how to do HR, marketing, sales, any of that. And actually, much less, you know, manage people either. So um, it's been an adventure, and I, I went through and figured out, you know, through trial and error, and a lot of a lot of books that I've read, um, just better ways to do things, you know, continually improving the process along the way. Uh, we had some success in 2013. We ended up doubling, more than doubling the company. And uh, a couple years later, I had a friend of mine in one of our peer groups ask me, you know, if we could partner up somehow because he really wanted to focus on client account management. And he said, hey, maybe you guys can run operations and you know, accounting and all that stuff on the back end. So we figured out a way to partner up. And that was the catalyst of really what is skyrocketed ITS in the last few years. So back when we did that, it was 2016. Um, we integrated for a while, for about a year or so, and realized like, you know, this is working really well. He's able to focus on what he loves to do, we were able to do you know, what we did well, and uh, we said, we got to do this again. So we ended up doing additional partnerships, you know, 2018, 19, 20. Um, obviously, COVID hit, so things kind of slowed down a bit. But then we ended up doing a big merger um, with a couple more MSPs in 2021. So at that point, we put together about eight MSPs, all organically, um, no cash out of our pockets, just really, you know, kind of bootstrapped it and got real creative with bringing the companies together. Um, we got to a size though that, you know, I'm sure everybody's getting private equity calls, you know, every day, every week, you know, emails all the time. We were getting those same things. We said, you know, is it the right time for us to become a, a platform company? You know, a company that a private equity company would invest in. 
to then allow us to roll up or add additional uh, MSPs to us to get to a bigger size and eventually, you know, grow the value of the company. So we, you know, we, we sort of um, went back and forth on the idea and we were either going to keep doing it ourselves or try to get private equity. We had five more MSPs that we were looking to merge in and partner with. One of them wanted to get cashed out completely. So we had to make a decision internally of like, hey, do we want to scrape together, you know, all the funds that we had by that MSP or do we bring private equity in and use their their funding to, you know, buy the MSP and to buy the additional ones. So um, we ended up going down the, P- the PE route, brought private equity on in May of 2022 last year and completed all five sales or all five uh, purchases or, or partnerships with the MSPs um, since then. And we've been added uh, one more after that and then another one's in LOI right now. So it's been a crazy journey. Yeah, it's been a, it's been an insane ride, honestly, over the last uh, 20 years or so. Well, you've, you've just given me so much to unpack there. Um, this, <laughs> talk about when, when I do these interviews and, and people sort of tell me their story and in, in my head, I'm mentally tracking where I want to go and what I want to talk about. And you, you've given me at least 30 things I want to talk about there. So awesome. I'll try not to forget them. Let's let's go. Let's go right back. And that, and that is an insane journey. And, and in just 20 years as well. And, and I definitely want to explore uh, and we will explore later on how how you start to put uh, two or three MSPs together when you don't have lots of cash definitely want to explore the PE uh, and obviously the, the future. I think ITS is, is clearly, you know, you're, you're positioning yourselves for, for a very big uh, acquisi- acquisitive, is that the word? Acquisitive future. So we'll come on to all of that. Let's go back 20 years, first of all. So you were uh, EA, EA moves away. Uh, was it Vegas to, to LA is about three hours, I think? I, I, I know this because I drove it the other way around. I drove from LA yeah, to Vegas. Three, four hours. Uh, yeah, and it's, exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's not, not a commutable distance. You definitely have to move no. there. So were you at a technician or were you involved in the, the software side when you when you had that decision yeah i was an engineer uh network engineer so okay. we, you know we ran or i helped run uh gaming servers and the network the rendering you know the rendering servers so you know in day-to-day support we, we dealt with all kinds of things there kind of kind of like what i do now honestly it's uh or what ITS does now. Yes, yes. Just, just perhaps at a, a slightly different scale. Um, yeah. So, so a lot of MSPs, a lot of MSP owners, they they start their business because they have what's known as the entrepreneurial seizure. And you, you said yourself that you've you've read loads of books. You've probably read uh, the E Myth Revisited, yeah. which is the Michael Gerber classic from I think it's like 1984. And he says that once that idea is in your head that you should start your own business, it's very hard to just carry on working for someone else. And I think the most miserable people in the world are those who've had that seizure and you haven't yet acted on it. So you, it sounds like you, you had a slightly different origin story in that it wasn't your, you weren't the one that was driving it. It was, it was, was, was it the case that you, that opportunity was there and you, ha- you, you thought, you know what, I don't want to move. I'm going to go and try this myself. Or was it, was it sat there at the back of your head and EA relocating was just the, the, the catalyst that made it happen? Yeah, I think deep down, I always wanted to have my own business and it was just a matter of trying to figure it out. Uh, one of the challenges I had at EA was that it was an easy job. It was so easy. I was, I was complacent and I'd roll in and, you know, everything was kind of working the way it was, should be working. We had budget to buy equipment and make sure everything was up to date. It was a fun place, a lot of creative people, super, you know, fun atmosphere. And it was hard to quit that job and say, I'm going to go do something on my own because it was just so satisfying. 
And so when they shut the studio down in Las Vegas, then I had to make a decision. And they said, you know, you can go to LA, um, you got a job there, or you can take a severance package and, and, you know, do whatever. So I, I thought, all right, this is, this is the moment I got to figure out what I'm going to do. I know I don't want to go to LA, or I didn't at the time. And, you know, I said, all right, give me the severance package. Let's, let's see what happens. And even at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do. It wasn't until probably a few months later trying to figure it out to where I, you know, kind of fell into this whole IT consulting business. And that must have been quite a, a culture shock for you to go from being, you know, part of, I mean, even 20 years ago, EA was a massive, massive company. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it certainly is today. And, and to, to, to then suddenly be this, this one-man band, sole IT contractor. Um, how did you, you know, lo- lots of people listen to this podcast, often listen, they, they discover it at the start of their journey. So I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear from someone who, you know, 20 years on from that. How, how did you cope in those early days? How did you make that transition from being part of something you know, a, a part of a big team that was part of something even bigger to, to just being you? Uh, you know, the interesting thing was that uh, EA owned a studio called Westwood Studios, and that was the studio I worked at in Las Vegas. And in our studio, we had about mm, probably the height of it was like 300 employees, which, you know, it's a fair amount of employees. I joined, I think, when it was 90. So there's a lot of got to figure it out, got to do it yourself. You know, we did have a team of, of people in the IT department but I ended up, you know, touching a lot of different technologies and I had a good understanding of, of a lot of different things. So when I got out of there, it was a little scary, right? Walking into a network, there's no backup, you know, there's no, you know, there's no support, I should say, of, you know, what's, how's this thing laid out? Who designed it? What's the equipment? You know, all that. It's just, hey, I got a client that's saying this thing's broken. Now I got to figure it out. So yeah, that, that was a little nerve wracking until I went through probably, you know, 10 different clients and then kind of got to be like, okay, this is kind of the similar stuff that's happening. And now I have a good understanding of how I could help these people. Yeah, I can imagine. And how long did it take you to get your first member of staff? Because I think that that point at which you actually take someone on, it's, it's you know, there's a big difference from going from one person to two, and then obviously two very quickly leads onto three, or can lead quickly onto three. What was your kind of progression through through to getting staff and actually starting to, to build it into, let's be honest, what is a, a proper business when you've got a team? Yeah, I think I got lucky. So initially, I had five clients and I had a friend of mine that had these clients and he couldn't figure out all the problems. So we went and, you know, fixed all the stuff. And we said, okay, we started working with these five clients. Then, you know, joined a bunch of different like leads groups trying to figure out how do I get more business? Like, how does this thing scale? How do I, how do I pay my bills? Right? Like that's, that was the biggest issue. And then how do I make it consistent so I can, you know, uh, rely on the money that's coming in. But I think I got to a point where, you know, my schedule was filling up. I had some additional requests and I said, okay, I need to bring another person on. So I had a friend of mine who also worked at EA, also decided to stay in Las Vegas. I think he was doing some IT consulting on the side as well. I said, hey, you know, maybe we could like partner up somehow. I could just pay you to go do some of these jobs and we could work together in that way. And then that got to be, you know, we got more and more clients and more business to where to the point where I said, okay, why don't we just hire you on and then we can just work under uh, ITS. I think it was about a year into it where I I would consider myself pretty lucky, actually. Uh, One of the guys that worked at EA got a job at a big architectural firm out here in Las Vegas. And he, you know, when he got the job, he was there for two months and he's like, this place is such a disaster. 
we got to fix it. You know, he reached out to me to help him out. Um, and so that became one of our biggest clients or it was definitely our biggest client back then, you know, still one of our larger clients now, 20 years later, but that, that one year of just building, having, um, you know, maybe a part-time person here, a part-time admin to help with invoicing, answering the phone, that kind of thing turned into mm, probably two or three people after the first year. And it's, uh, it's a bit of a culture shock. I mean, if you're not used to managing people, like how do you manage somebody? And I've learned a lot of things along the way, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a different scenario for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, I, I did it 20, uh, sorry, 2005 was when I started my first business. I'm getting so old now. I can't remember when it was. And uh, that, that, that first employee, which was about nine months in for me, it was, it was, it was a culture shock because actually that meant an office as well. And it meant doing things properly. And suddenly you need to do HR and you need to do payroll. And that means you, you, you have all these extra expenses, which just come out of nowhere, but it is, it's the only way to turn a, you know, what, what is otherwise a well-paid or badly paid job into a, into a proper business. Okay, so I think you said you you were scaling up for about ten years um, before you did your first merger. I think it was around about th- those yep. numbers. So t- tell us tell us what what was your what was your path of, of organic growth? So tell us the marketing stuff that you did that worked the best for you in that in that first decade. Yeah, the first decade, I would say uh, some of the leads groups initially were were decent. It was something you know, like we don't. We don't do the same leads groups that I did back then now, but when I was just starting out, every dollar mattered so much that anything, you know, was, was good. Then I got to the point where I had some extra money and I was able to uh, do some direct mail campaigns or, uh, you know, advertising the phone book back then. That was the thing, right? Of course, you got the little website that didn't really produce much, but it was a lot of just who do I know? Who knows me? Um, I did actually get a few calls out of the phone book, uh, oddly enough. Um, and then some of the direct mail worked, you know, quite well back then. It was it was pretty effective as far as like getting some decent leads in. Of course, you know, ninety nine percent of it probably was just thrown in the trash, but that one percent that responded was valuable. Yeah, and sometimes you have to just sort of edge your way through it, don't you? And just try some things. And you know, pe- people sometimes say to me, "What what's the best marketing I can use right now? And it's like, right, I've got 200 things you could use. And this seems to be working really well for a bunch of MSPs, but you, you do have differences, you know, and I'm, I work with um, lots of MSPs in different parts of the world. And what might work in Nevada, uh, Las Vegas is Nevada, isn't it? Yes, see, I got that right. Uh, probably wouldn't work in Montana because they're, they're completely different. You know, they might be physically part of the same country, but they're completely different uh, to areas, completely different people, different businesses. And I think, you know, trying different things and seeing what works for you in your area is often a, a really smart plan. So you, you said you were um, you were part of a peer group with uh, with another MSP. Talk us through then, how do you, how does that conversation get broached where two, two people look at putting their business together? I think that maybe they had an idea that they were gonna move away from, uh, LA was our first partnership, they were gonna move from LA. And so, you know, they were thinking that, hey, how do I keep this business going? Like, how do I sustain this thing? If I'm not in LA, like who could help out? You know, I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions there, but you know, that's what it seemed because it, it, it seemed to transpire that way. So w- when, you know, mm. this uh, part of ours approached me and said, hey, is there some way we could partner up? Um, I thought, all right, well, this is a good opportunity. I, I think it's a matter of, at least in the peer group, showing that, uh, I don't know, maybe 
having dedication to the business, showing success over time, it builds a lot of confidence. I mean, obviously internally for us, but also with other people. So they look at us and say, all right, well, hey, Tom and ITS, they seem to know what they're doing over there. And, you know, if they were in a position where they were either going to, you know, knowingly move out of the area or they're burned out or they just wanted to not do every job under the sun, right, in the business, that would be the kind of broaching the conversation. That would be the catalyst to, to getting that conversation going. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's almost like um, you you were, uh, and I appreciate. I'm I'm speculating now, but you you were someone else's exit plan essentially. You were their their exit strategy because um, d- did they stay in the business when when the two of you came together? Or yeah, they stayed in the business. The interesting thing was they stayed in the business, and then six months later they ended up moving across the country to Connecticut. So they moved their family to Connecticut, and that was a big shock for me because I didn't know that was going to happen. But you know, I was like, all right, well, we're gonna make the best of it. Um, you know, kind of just figuring things out, like being a creator is one of our core values. So it's, you know, we just look at things as challenges, like, okay, how do we overcome this? What do we have to do? And we just kept it going. And even even, even though he was in Connecticut, he was still involved in the business, still involved with the clients. He'd fly back on a regular basis. And, you know, our team just came together to make it happen. And, you know, that worked for years and years and years. So it was, it turned out to be okay. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. And then, and then, how? What, what was the route that sort of brought in some of those other MSPs? Just give us a little bit more detail on the story you were telling us earlier. Sure. Yeah. So the second partnership that we did was an MSP that the first partner knew in Orange County, and this guy um, he loved he loved technology. He you know he had about three people in his company. One of the people had a severe illness, had to quit. The other one had the uh, I think they were on a visa or something that ended, they had to leave the country. So, so this three person company was condensed down into a one person company. And that guy, while he loved technology, you know, he didn't want to work 20 hours a day, you know, trying to like make up for the other, the other two people He's like, I don't really need to work this hard. I just want to, you know, keep kind of stay in the game a little bit. Um, and, and that was his catalyst to, to, you know, wanting to join us is say, Hey, you guys do all the stuff that I don't have time for. And I'll just keep working with the clients that I really love. So that was the second deal. Uh, right the month after that, while we were trying to find another partnership, we were looking into Phoenix, Arizona. And so we sent out some direct mails. We called some different people. And somebody responded and said, hey, you know, I'm interested. You know, let's, you know, I'm looking to have a partner. And, you know, what can we work out? So that month, uh, it was February 2018, we did the third partnership out in, in Phoenix, Arizona. So they had a, a company. I think the catalyst for them, if I had to, if I had to just guess, was they were sick of running the company alone, and they wanted to have someone they could bounce ideas off of. Interestingly enough, he wasn't in any peer group, so he he didn't really have that same forum of people to bounce ideas off of and use as a sounding board. So he was looking for a partner to come in and be that person for him. So he had about, I want to say, five employees, five or six employees at the time, and um, that that worked out pretty well because, like, we were able to share information, experience, and it allowed us to expand into the Phoenix, Arizona market. So what you're describing there, which obviously worked for you because it's led on to bigger and better things, there is a parallel universe somewhere where you've got 
a bunch of companies coming together where the, the owners stay in the business and they don't get on. They, they have different ideas, different ways of operating. They can't agree on a PSA. They can't agree on, you know, on standard things that you would need to, to standardize as you start to bring together lots of different companies. Did you, did you have an element of that where there was conflict or did you manage to work around that? Because in my eyes, putting a bunch of business owners together and then taking away, you know, the, the let's be honest, the, the best thing about being a business owner is full autonomy, right? We can do right. exactly yeah. what we want to do, yeah. whether it's the right thing or not. And then suddenly when we have a business partner of, of any kind, that there's there's a limit placed on that. So was that ever an issue or did it did it just sort of seem to, to work itself out or did you just assume that the natural leadership position? I think initially, because we built out a leadership team on our end and I, you know, before the first partnership, I think we were running about four or five million in revenue, and so we had a sales manager, we had a you know service manager, and, you know controller. Um, I'm not sure we had an HR manager at the point, but you know we had some bit of HR department going on, and so we had these these different roles sort of already built out. So when people looked at our company, they were like, oh well, hey, I'm doing everything myself. You guys have a team of people that can help out. So they just naturally just came into the company and just assumed you know most of the tools and processes that we had. Now, definitely, we didn't have it all figured out. I don't think we have it figured out 100% now even. Right? We're still continuously improving every day, every month. Um, but you know, the, the foundation that we had was pretty solid. And we were able to bring people on and say, OK, hey, we're using the ConnectWise PSA, or we're using Kaseya RMM, or whatever it was, right? And most people were using a similar tool set. It was either going to be on Kaseya, uh, you know, or Automate, or you're going to be on, you know, yeah. likewise Manage, or you're on Autotask. And you know, the tools are familiar enough to, you know, similar enough, I should say, to one another that it didn't really matter. And it was just like, okay, hey, what do you guys? What's the platform? All right, great, I'll come in. There is a huge integration process. Like, you know, our integration process is about nine to 12 months and it goes through hundreds and hundreds of tasks and in part you know some of those tasks are hey we got to move from your rmm over to our rmm or your ticketing system to our ticketing system so um there's still a lot of moving parts people you know like to your point your question how do you get people to all agree some of it is sort of like okay hey we you know we believe connectwise manages a decent ticketing system great we'll use that or we're we're good with automate great we'll use that and if we need to change it, we can change it. Initially, we would say, hey, just use just use the stuff that we have right now, and then we can modify it later. But the biggest thing was actually getting the integration going and getting on the same platform so the team could be uh, working together. Got it. So as those people were, were sort of coming in then, it, it, I guess it became easier and easier with each integration because you, you could say to them, well, this is how we run things. This is this is the stack we use. This is the direction we're going with that. And and obviously, if you've already got those resources uh, sorted out, that's easier. You make an interesting point there about um, that as a business, you you still haven't got it perfect. Is, is there anything as such as, as a perfect business? Does it even exist? I don't think it does. Because at the point you think you've got things figured out, you know, something else is breaking, right? Yeah, totally. I, you know, the perfect business, I, I somebody joked around, is like the perfect business is one that you don't have any clients and no employees. Like, <laughs> yes. it's, and then somehow the money just flows in. You're like, oh, I don't, this is magic. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to kind of go back on my point about where we had this foundation of tools. I think that worked really well. You know, I guess tools and processes that worked really well for smaller MSPs that were joining. 
when we got to 2021 and we merged three MSPs together, so we had Intivix out of uh, San Francisco and we had PC Miracles out of Detroit. And then we had ITS, which had four four locations at the time from different MSPs that joined. ITS, PC Miracles, Intivix, we all merged together in 2021. And that was that was probably the biggest uh, the biggest bit of complexity to deal with because each MSP was sizable in its own right, and they all had we all had our processes and our way of doing things and things that worked well to get us past the five million mark, the seven million mark, the ten million mark. And so bringing those companies together, there was a lot of conversations. It was sort of okay, let's take a step back. What are you doing? How's it working? Is it working for you? Is it not? Okay, what are we doing? What does that look like? Which one do we want to go with? What process do we want to use? And even now, two years later, a lot of that's been worked out, but there's still some things that are still being worked out between those companies that came together to, to make sure that you know we're providing the most value we can to our clients. So if you don't mind, can we just touch on the, the money side? So I think I remember you saying right at the beginning that the, those early mergers uh, were done pretty much without cash, you know, huge amounts of cash changing hands. Now, everyone always feels a bit awkward. Well, I'm, I'm British, but the British are the most awkward in the world at asking about money. Uh, but how, how did you do those early mergers? Was it a case of everyone sort of took new ownership stakes? How did that change as you brought new players in? And, and how far did that get you to the point you realised, like you said earlier, that we were going to need some kind of private equity to continue doing bigger and bigger deals? Yeah, so I'll start with the, the easier, more simplistic to the more complex. So the most simple way was to just say, hey, listen, I'm going to let's create a promissory note and I'm going to buy your business for X amount of dollars and I'll pay you over a certain amount of time or I'll pay you a certain percentage of the revenue that's coming in. So if the clients stay, you get paid. If they don't, you know, hey, you know, there's no risk to me, you know, as the buyer. That, that worked for a couple deals. Um, you know, next step up that's, you know, a little bit easier to understand would be just straight merger. Hey, your company's worth X amount of dollars. Ours is worth another, you know, Y amount of dollars. We put them together. You know, now we have Z amount of dollars, let's say. And, you know, that's that's just some way to come together without, without actually spending money. Um, the third way, which is more complex, that we did basically three different times was a very unique partnership structure where... We had our corporation and they had their corporation, but we, we formed another third corporation together. And let's say it was just 50-50. And in that corporation, they had put all their clients from their original one into the new, the new entity. And that entity would give them sort of a, a, a preference or a call, think of it as like a promise or not necessarily a promissory note, but like a promise to pay the value of those clients when we go and sell this entire thing. So let's say that you and I were going to you know, go into partnership. We'd form another company. You're, you and I are 50-50. You put the clients in that company. Let's say it's, they're worth a million dollars. You'd have a, a promise for a million dollars. You get the first million dollars uh, payment if, we, you know, if and when we sell everything together. And then anything that is above and beyond that million dollars, we just split 50-50 based on our ownership levels. Now, day-to-day, you know, we would just split the profits 50-50 and there'd be also another payment from that company back to our company, ITS, to, you know, do all the service. So we would hire all the employees as well from the original company. So there, 
they're kind of their company kind of turned into this shell, you know, investor based company. The third company really just contained the clients and brought in the you know brought in the revenue and paid expenses. And then ITS became the place where we housed all the employees. Um, we had all the processes and, and you know tool sets uh, you know internally. So definitely more complex than most people have probably ever heard of. That worked well for us because it, it allowed people to say, okay, hey, you know, you're going to give me a million dollars, the first million dollars somewhere down the road, you know, when this thing sells. Uh, up until then, we're still getting cash distributions, you know, based on our ownership level. Um, if, you know, our goal was to put a bunch of companies together to become more valuable so that, you know, that million dollars is worth, you know, 1.5, 2 million, 3 million and so forth. Um, if it, if that happens, then like, let's say me or ITS would get some payout, but if it doesn't happen, then, you know, they get all the money in the end. So it, it, it kind of worked on multiple levels, even though it's really complex. I, you know, I, I tend to you know, have to explain it and draw it out. If I, if I had a whiteboard here, I could draw out the thing and make more sense, but that, that way worked pretty well. Like it, people go, I get it. I, I like it, and you know I want to join based on that. Yeah, you've clearly kept a lot of lawyers very busy over the years, uh, coming up with very complex schemes, which is uh, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that that private equity money. So you, you, uh, remind us again what what size you were at and how many MSPs you'd pulled together when you made that decision to go off in a different direction, and what was it that sent you off? You know, in, instead of doing these clever deal structures, which which ultimately, I guess, that you're taking on all the risk and you're you're, you're sort of spreading spreading your resources every time you do one. What made you decide to go in that different direction? Yeah, so we took private equity on last year. <clears throat> we were running about twenty two million revenue and maybe about four point three million EBITDA or net profit. That size, like four or five million EBITDA is about the size that private equity companies want to look look at, you know, to, to create a platform company that they can invest in. Uh, we were doing these different partnerships that were working pretty well. We had about eight of them at the time before we took private equity. We had five more MSPs that we had signed LOIs with uh, at, at that time as well. And so we had to make a decision. You know, the first MSP that we had to sign LOI on was to purchase one based in, in Phoenix. That owner had his business for 32 years. He's like, hey, I, I had a good, a good run. I just want to you know, do something different. So we said, all right, how are we going to come up with the money? I think it was like, you know, it was a few million dollars. So we, how are we going to come up with this few million dollars to purchase this business? And collectively inside, you know, we were saying, okay, well, we could probably pull some funds together. And we were doing $4 million net profit, like, you know, but a lot of us were getting distributions off that as well. So it's sort of, you know, how do we, how do we make this work? Uh, then we got, we were talking to private equity for that entire time as well. And they said, you know, we came in, we could buy the company obviously and you know you could use our funding our debt providers um we could try to go get a debt provider on our own which we did look at that uh it's funny chase is our our main banking relationship and chase came in and said hey i like what you guys are doing uh i think we can help you the only problem is you know we only do deals that are less than or more than five million dollars in value and our deal was like call it three million dollars or whatever it was it was lower than the five million so we're we're like oh, that's weird right like this bank only wants to give us five million dollars or, or more <laughs> so we went to another one uh, another company that that provides a lot of debt funding in, in this market and they, they said we can only do eight million dollar deals and above <laughs> and so i was like 
what are we, this is crazy, right? So how do you get the money, you know, for less than 5 million or less than 8 million? And, you know, you can get SBA loans. We didn't want to like leverage our entire lives to do that. So we were trying to figure it out and, you know, it kind of got to the point of like, okay, if we go private equity, we can definitely get this deal done quickly uh, and efficiently. The other four deals behind that, they could help out with as well. And then at that point in time, we could also take some money off the table. You know, as private equity comes in, the owners basically are selling a portion of the business to the private equity firm and then in turn taking the cash off the table or, you know, taking, getting some value out of the business. So I think, you know, that liquidity event was helpful. You know, we looked at it and said, okay, well, liquidity event would be great. Uh, being able to use their funding would be great. Uh, I thought the culture of the private equity firm seemed very, very similar to our culture internally. So we said, okay, could we work with these people? Like, you know, how would it look? And then also to get the other deals done, they had a, a deal team. They had a team of people that all they do is work on deals. So they do all the analysis, they do the financials and the due diligence. They, they do the whole thing. So that took a lot of pressure off of us. So we felt at the time that going down the private equity road was, was our best bet. And you know, as we went down that, that private equity road, uh, I think it was beneficial because the four deals that we did afterwards, uh, a couple of them were, were pretty smooth. It wouldn't have been an issue, but there were one or two that were more complex based on their corporate structure. Uh, you know, rather than being like an LLC or an S corp, they were, that were more, and that would have caused us some issues. So the private equity firm helped out greatly in, in that respect. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine, and it, it clearly sounds like you've you've found a you found a good partner. Uh, if if they have a similar culture to you, then that's you know you you can see that that would be a good thing going forward. On the on the subject of culture, actually, I'll come back to that in two seconds. Uh, you mentioned something called LOI earlier, which stands for Letter of Intent. I just want to uh, explain that for our listeners in case you wonder what an LOI was. It's where you essentially sign something saying I'm going to buy your business. Um, we're talking about culture. Um, what would you what do you do now? Because the business is obviously exploded completely. It's obviously totally different. It was different in 2013 than it was when you started it in 2003. But what you've got today, you could probably argue, is so vastly different to, to what you had 10 years ago. You've got all these different companies that have come together. We've all read that mergers are very difficult to make work and you, you've brought lots of different things together. As as the leader, what do you do to try to keep the, the cultures of, of the various units you know working as as they were do you keep them as separate units do you have local managers what's what's your sort of approach to that yeah i think there's a philosophical maybe difference or approach to it so for us we we wanted to have one team you know which gave us one culture and and you know one group of people to rely on and so we decided early on like let's integrate everything let's let's have one brand name Let's have one platform of ticketing and RMM and all these things. Like let's let's have it all on the same the same table. Uh, it's not always done like that. There's a lot of different ways that private equity firms come in and say, "Hey, we'll buy in your company. Just keep your name, keep everything. We're just going to own a portion of it and just keep doing your thing." And there's other ones that are sort of uh, hybrid, where you say, "Well, keep your name, keep doing your thing, but we're going to take over the accounting side, so we can kind of keep track of all the money." And then you know, our our method up to this point has been. Hey, let's integrate everything because we want to be one company. And I, I think from a culture standpoint, that's the best. I mean, obviously, that's the road that we chose to go down. Um, we tend to keep the culture up by, by leaning on our core values. So we talk about our core values all the time, every single day. In our daily huddle, we talk about core values. 
one thing early on when we were, you know, when I was learning about core values, I'm reading these books, I'm like, oh, what's core value? I got to come up with this thing. We all have core values, whether we have defined them or not is the question. And so when we took a step back and said, okay, well, what are our core values? And we wrote a list of 10 and it was like, we felt all great about it, right? It was amazing. And then, you know, a couple months later, we were in our daily huddle and I was like, hey guys, uh, so, you know, who could name off all 10 core values? Nobody could do it. Not, not at all. Right. And then you know, I came in the next day. I was like, I got a hundred dollars for somebody that could read up all the core values. And somebody got eight out of 10. I was like, okay, well, we're still not there. And it got me thinking that it was just too much. And so we pared it down to five and, you know, we had five for a while. And then I got to the point of like, you know, some of these are a little bit similar. Can we pare it down more? Can we simplify it even more? And so now we've simplified it to three core values and we talk about them every day. We encourage people to tell a, a core value story in our daily huddle. So that's the way that we figured out how to get people to remember the core values. So, you know, if, if I was in a situation where I had some, you know, challenge I had to overcome, it's like, okay, you know, or, or say, Paul, you're in a situation where you overcome a challenge. I saw that and noticed it. I wanted to highlight you in the, in the daily huddle and say, hey, Paul was really being a creator because he overcame XYZ scenario. That was in front of him. That was an awesome, awesome thing to do. Or maybe um, you know, doing the right thing was another is another one of our core values. It used to be integrity. People used to say, well, you know, they kind of get confused with integrity, and so we we did distilled it down to doing the right thing, which is you know, what's the right thing for for you as a person and the client and the company. And so, like, imagine there's a Venn diagram where you're overlapping those three different interests. The center of that is the right thing, and we tell people. Hey, we're not going to be there every second of the day. We don't want to micromanage people, right? We need to rely on you to make a decision. And so just weigh it out. Like, what's the right thing for this client, for you, the company, you know, ITS? Like, what is it? And just make a decision. If it's a mistake, great. We, we learned something, right? We learned something new. But if it's not, then we all moved on and, you know, we, we saved a lot of time. And so then the third core value is having an open mind. Because I think, you know, in this business, we tend to only we, we we tend to deal with problems all the time. It's just a, a problem-based business, right? Clients are calling, this is broken, that's broken, this is down, you know, whatever. And so it's easy to it's easy to kind of get into this negative mindset. And while people love to get positive feedback, if I say, Hey Paul, you're doing a great job, that's you know, keep it up, that's great. You love to hear that. But how do you react when you know I say, Hey Paul, I got a problem, you didn't fix the problem or you know, you, you worked on this, but you know, you made something worse. Like, how do you, how do we react to that? And having an open mind is all about really, how do I deal with the negative feedback that's coming in? Can I unwrap the negativity from it, see what the message is, and then learn and grow from that message. And so if we stay open and have an open mind, then we're actually going to help ourselves, you know, and we'll help the client as well, but we'll, we'll grow as a person or as a team because of it. I love that. I love it. And I love the fact that you've you've just made it as simple as you can. I think far too often we we overcomplicate things. We as business leaders, we you know, we we have all these things that we want to do and all these directions we want to go in and so we end up overcomplicating and for you to go down from 10 to 3 is absolutely perfect. Okay. Tom, final question. I'm going to ask you to put your crystal ball uh, or get your crystal ball out and and use your your future uh, uh sightseeing skills. We're right on the verge of 2020 
24 right now. Now, you're quite heavily involved, obviously, in, in M&A, mergers and acquisitions. What do you think is going to happen? And this is obviously just pure speculation because no one really knows, but we're seeing loads of M&A within the channel. Obviously, we've seen the massive vendors. There's been huge amounts of M&A there in the last couple of years. We're now starting to see more companies like yours uh, come together. Uh, it's happening here in the UK. I know it's happening in other countries as well as in the US. What do you think is going to happen in, in the MSP M&A world in the next two to three years? I think it's going to keep keep going. So it's it's heating up. I think it's going to continue. I see from all the conferences that I go to that M&A is one of the hottest topics. We're either talking about M&A or we're talking about cybersecurity. That's the only two things people want to talk about at these conferences, it seems like. And so individual MSP owners are trying to figure out, how do I do this? How do I do this to grow my business? We all know how difficult it is to grow organically, figure out how to market and sell properly. You know, that that's a challenge in its own right. But then, you know, could I grow my company 50%, 100% or even more through mergers and acquisitions? That's the question that people are, are really contending with right now. And I've seen uh, a bunch of different MSPs go down that road and have some success. It's not always successful, right? There's a, there's a lot of complexity to it to try to figure out. Um, I've also seen a ton of MSPs say, hey, you know, I've grown to a certain size. I'd rather, you know, I sell to a private equity firm, get some money off the table, and then, you know, keep growing the business through M&A. So 2024, I think it's just going to keep going. Even with the market being kind of crazy, interest rates rising, it, it puts pressure on, on doing different deals, but I, I don't think that's going to slow down uh, in this industry. Yeah, I guess a lot of it depends on the the hunger uh, that the, the, the private equity uh, brings in. Because um, I used to work in uh, do marketing for veterinarians in the UK, and that was probably about ten years ago when this huge wash of money <laughs> came into the into the sector. And in fact, it was actually a lot of it was driven from the US, and and the money was relatively cheap, and it allowed big you know some very very big groups to be very aggressive with their acquisition and go and buy lots and lots of different veterinarian practices and build a, a set of groups and then. Mars uh, came in and sort of bought up some of those and it was it was fascinating to watch because the whole thing was being driven by essentially cheap money you know money money that was was coming from from big investors and it was being used to consolidate on on the, on the hope of course that there would be a lot more money to be made down the line so yeah I I think I agree with you I think we're, we're going to see more and more it would be fascinating Tom to get you back on the podcast uh, perhaps next year or the year after um, I'm sure you know your business will continue to to acquire and we'll continue to go on to other things uh, and it'll be lovely to fascinating to track your progress and also to see what's happening in the M&A world uh, as we go forward for anyone that's listening to this today and wants to get in touch with you just perhaps have a pick your brains on something or just have a chat about their MSP what's the best way to get in touch with you yeah probably LinkedIn is the easiest you know so my LinkedIn profile name is Tom Andrulis so T-O-M-A-N-D-R-U-L-I-S so just you know sort of, you know short and sweet Tom Andrulis uh Reach out via LinkedIn. Um, I guess you could also email me too if you like. It's uh, tomA at itsasap.com. So either those two methods would work. Coming up. Coming up next week. We've never done anything like this before, so it's a bit of an experiment. I am taking you out on a walk. I want to help you make a link between the things that you do on a daily basis and the results that you get. In fact, more than just the results you get, the lifestyle you get. And that is going to be a truly inspirational way for us to start 2024. So join me next Tuesday and have a very profitable week in your MSP.
Made in the UK. For MSPs around the world. Paul Green's MSP, MSP Marketing Podcast.